How can Christians live out their faith in the church, the family, and the government? Find out in the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November, Faith That Shines in the Culture. It's written by regular guest Dr. Alfonso Espinosa. Learn more about Faith That Shines in the Culture at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040. Faith That Shines in the Culture, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for November. The hymn, Lord Jesus Christ, with us abide, a hymn that many of us will be singing this coming Sunday. We'll also hear the gospel reading from Matthew 23, Jesus talking about the scribes and Pharisees. He says, they sit in Moses' seat, therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc., coming to you from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. Joining us to look forward to Sunday morning, according to the three-year lectionary, the 23rd Sunday after Pentecost, Pastor Sean Denzer. He's Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Sean, welcome. Great to be here. Jesus is going to issue a stern warning in the Gospel reading for this coming Sunday regarding the scribes and the Pharisees. Is there anything good we can say about them? (laughs) That's a good question. And I guess in a way there is, although it's pretty much a backhanded compliment we have from Jesus today. But it's an important admission, which is they have an office, and in that office they conduct certain things that are necessary from God. The specific thing is that they teach the Word of God. They sit in Moses' seat, which is a way of saying they're the ones who read Torah, who are supposed to be the teachers of Israel and the leaders of Israel. And we're going to find out that most of what they do has to be ignored and even rejected because they've rejected Christ. But one thing remains, and that is still full of all its power. It's there to be uh, taken advantage of if only people will believe it and ignore all the things that clutter it up. And that's the very word of God. So we're going to be talking about that today, the, the way in which the word of God can cut through all of our human clutterings. Uh, and not be silenced by anyone, but also the way in which when the Word of God is ignored, it's disastrous effect for those who ignore it. And anybody who would clutter up God's Word, who would teach contrary to it and despise it in that way, not by outright rejecting it wholesale, but by twisting it, by not taking it to heart, that's the kind of person who is destructive in the church and needs to be avoided at all costs and not listened to and not obeyed. While we're talking about the Word of God, we're also going to be talking about leadership in the church and the potential for corruption of that leadership. And I think it'll be an important warning, not only for pastors, but also for those who hear pastors. What conclusions will we find there in the propers and the gospel that centers those propers? We're going to find out how to treasure the Word of God. That's nothing new for us, I hope, but uh, we need to hear it again. And sometimes it helps to see uh, the misuse of God's Word next to it in stark relief to show us all the more why it's essential that we treasure the Word of God. We will learn something about how to judge our teachers. 
which all of us need to do. This is what it means that Christ says, beware false prophets elsewhere. That means that that we need to be not just blindly or deftly receiving the word of God, but we need to be thinking as well as we hear it. And by what means will we judge and have a standard to know whether the teaching we're hearing is true or not? We'll also learn about the discipline of humility, especially for those who are teaching and leading. Uh, But there's a way in which this humility is not particular to the office, those who are in the office of a teacher or a a leader, but it is a, a common humility that is required of all humans by the Lord, their creator. And that is to be humble with regards to our own works and our own persons. Another way to say this is the whole attitude of repentance, which is essential. It was Luther's first thesis in the 95 Theses. It's not the gospel in and of itself, but it's part of the important recognizing of what is the case when the gospel comes in, that we ourselves are not to be trusted as our own saviors or our own creators by any means, which is why we speak about the kingdom of God, about the gospel as being about salvation that the Lord is actually rescuing us and lifting us up out of desperation and trouble. We just need to recognize that the trouble is inherent in us. That's why the rescue comes from outside of us. The intro for this coming Sunday, Psalm 149, with a little of 148 in there too. Yeah, the antiphon comes from 148 verse 13. Praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. Now to 149. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Let Israel be glad in his maker. Let the children of Zion rejoice in their king. Let them praise his name with dancing, making melody to him with tambourine and lyre. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Both of these psalms are psalms of general praise from the end of the Psalter, which is sometimes treated as one giant psalm of praise. They all begin, Alleluia, praise the name, praise the Lord. This one sets up with the antiphon a distinction between God and us that's going to be essential because we're going to talk about the word of God in the church, the teaching of the church, and how it's essential that we never confuse our words with God's divine word and and the difference that's there. So we pray and we sing that his name alone is exalted. What What is high and lifted up about him? Well, he is the only God and we are not him. So whatever advice we may have, however good it is, either has him as its source in some way, therefore it's a true thing, or it's something in his creation that is being echoed, including our own wisdom, whatever it is, comes from being creatures of God. And yet, whatever is corrupted by sin in some way is going to be dark and dim and needs to be checked and corrected by God's word. That can always be abased, but the Lord and his word has to be exalted. Verse 4 is probably the most important. We see that the whole church is gathered here in this psalm. We're singing a new song about the Lord who both created us and rescues us with great praise. We rejoice in him as our king. This is how it ought to be, at least among Zion, the people of God. 
But we hear that he takes pleasure in his people and he adorns the humble with salvation. I think these are definitely two half verses that are to be taken complementary of one another. And what does then it show? It shows that the pleasure and the saving is all the Lord's work. It's not a matter of us earning something from him or finding our way into his good graces. That's going to be very important as we look at the rest of the readings today, which are certainly focused on, are you doing the things that the Lord actually commands, whether that's in speech or in act? So the saving is all the Lord's work. He's the one who takes pleasure in us. And humility and faith then are always to be connected. So it might seem that faith in God is not to be connected with humiliation and humility. Faith maybe should just be a a victorious, strong, conquering thing all the time. But our understanding of faith is not that it's some great strength in ourselves, but that it is that which clings to the promises and the gifts that God gives through his word. That's why humility rightly belongs together with faith. It's the humble person who is in a position to be lifted up, as we'll see when we get to our verse in the gospel. The Lord ends with his enigmatic statement, whoever exalts himself is going to be humbled, but the one who humbles himself, the Lord exalts. So humility doesn't go with sin, notice, right? Humility actually belongs with righteousness because those who are humble with regard to themselves are the ones the Lord lifts up and rescues. Likewise, the Lord's pleasure is what begets our good works, that he takes pleasure in us, that we trust in him and his promises, that we are lifted up by him. This is what makes good works and all accomplishments of Christians possible. On the contrary, pride arrogance, self-centeredness, the boasting in ourselves, this does not do it. It doesn't actually create true good works at all. Rather, the seeking after ourselves usually frustrates those and makes them rotten on the core, but also it doesn't earn us or gain us salvation. Works are the fruits of a saved person. They're not the merits by which we earn salvation or trigger it from God. What is the collect for the coming Sunday? Merciful and gracious Lord, you cause your word to be proclaimed in every generation. Stir up our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit that we may receive this proclamation with humility and finally be exalted at the coming of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, This is a, a fine collect. It zeroes in on the necessity of the Lord's word as opposed to man's substitutes. And it mentions that his word is proclaimed in every generation. We're going to see that both in the Old Testament and in the gospel reading. In the Old Testament, Micah is the true prophet in the midst of a lot of people who are preaching false words. Likewise, we'll see Jesus essentially taking that role himself. He's the one who's proclaiming the truth, and he's pointing out all the false prophets in in the form of the scribes and Pharisees all around him. And this is good. The necessity of the Lord's word that it would continue to echo through all the generations is necessary. We should never think the church began with us. It certainly didn't end with us. That points to the fact that Jesus is both its source and its aim of all of his word. And that's why this is quite a fine prayer. I do think it's lacking in the particular emphasis of the passages we're going to hear today, because the proclamation is certainly a word that you and I would associate with the gospel, the message of what Jesus has done to redeem and save us. Absolutely true. But 
the thing that needs to be received with humility, in particular in today's readings, is actually the corrective and instructive word of God, which is the law of God. The difficulty we'll see, especially in the Old Testament, is that prophets are trying to heal this lightly, which is uh, Jeremiah's way of saying they're trying to comfort people who need to be troubled. They're trying to say, it'll be fine because we're buddies, or in fact, because you're uh, greasing my wheels, because you're supporting me and propping me up, therefore I'm going to give you a good word, just straight up corruption and bribery. Rather, the gospel itself of the forgiveness of sins is what needs to be proclaimed to all generations. And that requires then that arrogant and proud sinners be torn down, be accused of their sins, that they would know why they need this rescue from the Lord, rather than to rely on some kind of false gospel, which is always either going to be a divine indifference that God really doesn't care about these things. In the end, he's just going to kind of roll over and say, yeah, sin was not that big a deal. My creation rejected me, but oh well. Or the opposite, human entitlement. God is my creator. He thinks I'm pretty special, and I know he'll do the right thing for me in the end. Uh, that sort of entitlement has no place before the holy God. The Old Testament reading is Micah 3, verses 5 through 12. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced, and the diviners put to shame. They shall cover their lips, all of them, for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice, and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood, and Jerusalem with iniquity, its heads give judgment for a bribe, its priests teach for a price, its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Okay, not a whole lot of comfort here. The reason is because there's been false comfort proclaimed. Jeremiah, of course, has something very similar. People cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Here, Micah says this quite delightfully. Rather, the Lord says this, and Micah's being the true prophet, and he even mentions himself there. He's filled with a power beyond him with the Spirit of the Lord. To say that they give a peace, a positive prophecy to those who put food into their mouths. <laughs> the one who pays their bills, that's the one who gets the good prophecy. And then the ones who don't pay them, who don't give them a bribe, who don't put food on their table, those are the ones that get the bad prophecies, war declared against them, etc. That's just straight up corruption and bribery going on among the Lord's prophets. And the result of it is destruction, of course, but with this metaphor, darkness. 
Okay, so the prophets of God are called seers sometimes. Isaiah, mighty seer, a song we still sing. Diviner usually is a negative word, but probably is kind of a play on words, the fact that they've turned to some other word other than the Lord's counsel. Therefore, it means they're seeking falseness and they're preaching falseness too. If you give your own word, there's kind of a dual thing here with this darkness. One, that the Lord is going to take away his counsel from these prophets so that his word won't be heard. We hear that silence. But also that if they're speaking their own words in truth, the Lord's word has already been shut out. And that's a great tragedy. The result either way is darkness. Even what they have is taken away. But as Micah says, the true power of, of all godly prophets, and this is something that's going to carry over even to the New Testament as we look at pastors and teachers in the church and the Lord's disciples in the gospel, the power is in the Spirit of God. And this is beautiful because we know about the counsel of the prophets from Jeremiah. We know that the word of the Lord comes to prophets, but sometimes it's not always clear how this is to be. And you see here that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, is connected directly with preaching, with the Word of God, with the true matters of God's Word. This is why, as Lutherans, we are always talking about the Word of God and the Holy Spirit together, the Scriptures and the Spirit together, because we recognize that the Lord speaks to us in many and various ways through these prophets of old, but now in these last days through his Son. And those whom his son has sent, the apostles, their writings as well. And therefore, uh, we're not ashamed to say that it is by the scripture alone that we judge all teaching, all preaching, and all life and morals. It's all judged by the word of God because the Holy Spirit is at work in those scriptures for life. That's going to be behind everything Jesus teaches today as well. As he says elsewhere in Matthew, that if you're seeking the power of God in the scriptures or life in the scriptures, very good. You're going to want to make sure that you understand that these scriptures are speaking about Jesus Christ. So the power here is slightly different. The power here is the power of the spirit to rebuke, to call out Jacob on his transgression and Israel on his sin. The Lord's word does two things, as Lutherans are often interested in saying, this particularly bright light of the distinction between the law and the gospel, that the Lord's word corrects and rebukes us. It calls us to repentance. Uh, it shows us what is the right way, and as a result, shows us where we have fallen from that right way. And it's a word that heals and brings peace, not just peace because you've rubbed God's back or something, but true peace, peace that is won by the blood of Jesus in his death. So the Lord here in Micah is rebuking the prophets and the people who are content to have false prophets who are easily bribed and who practice favoritism. I think the, the most painful thing is probably near the end. When we get to hear what the prophets who are taking bribes and teaching for a price, what they say, how they're still leaning on the Lord and assuming that he won't bring any disaster on them or that he's looking the other way at all this stuff or that somehow they're worthy of less than his judgment. 
Think of all the things we've heard from Jesus, his rebukes of the Pharisees in the last number of weeks, especially some of those parables about the king returning and destroying the people, and yet the brazen arrogance of, of those vineyard workers who had abused his servants and such. This kind of presuming on the Lord's good pleasure is the worst part of it. This is the hardness of heart that is seen. And that's why this prophecy doesn't really end in anything happy. It's going to be destruction of Jerusalem, destruction of Zion, destruction of Jacob and Israel, because these prophets have led them into darkness and done so quite hardly. The psalm for this coming Sunday, Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man deliver me, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. This psalm is sometimes joined up with Psalm 42 that has that little refrain where we kind of say to your soul, soul, why are you troubled? Hope in God. Return to your hope in the one who is our salvation. This is traditionally understood uh, to be Christ who's the one speaking this. He's the one who said to the Father, vindicate me, right? Have I not done all things well, and yet I'm being persecuted by the scribes and Pharisees, as we've seen in the last few weeks in Matthew? As a response to the Old Testament, I'm wondering whether we're supposed to take this as Micah's complaint to the Lord. Vindicate me, God. Defend my cause. It's not my own cause. It's your cause, after all. And I think that's all right. But what might be most helpful for us is simply to know how we can pray this psalm in the presence of corrupt teachers, in the presence of many people who may attack us in the church, especially those who attack with trickery and deceit and who are enemies of the word of God. Regardless of whether this is speaking about us or it's Micah in his office or any other prophet, I suppose, or Jesus himself, notice the answer in verse three, because this holds true for us just as it did for Christ in the temptation in the wilderness and when he was battling with the Pharisees and scribes too. The answer and the solution is the light and the truth. And for us, that is the word of God that is a lamp to our feet. The spirit-filled holy scriptures are the things that lead us rightly, that lead us safely through all of the enemies. They lead us to Christ. What does that mean in this psalm? I think it could be a beautiful thing to see how it brings us to his holy hill, his cross, his Calvary, the hill where salvation is won, where the true temple, his body, is uh, dwelling and where the sacrifice was made for our salvation. Likewise, even to his altar, which we understand to be both his cross, where he accomplished salvation, and the blessed sacrament. We still distribute that from what we call an altar, which is his delivery of salvation, bringing this joy to us, renewing hope, quickening faith in us. So a beautiful psalm about Christ, but also about all those who are in him, that we don't have to be afraid or cast down. We should trust in the Lord of our salvation and, and be glad to receive his light and cling to it all the more because of it. The epistle is 1 Thessalonians 4, the first 12 verses. 
I want to say just briefly, we're out of sync in the epistle with the Revised Common Lectionary and the Roman Catholic Church Lectionary. I do think theirs fits pretty well. This is what we heard back in 1 Thessalonians 2, brothers, our labor and our toil, how we worked day and night that we wouldn't be a burden to you. How, like a father with his children, we exhorted each of you and encouraged you. Statements from St. Paul about he and his fellow workers working in the gospel. We'll see echoes of that in today's from 1 Thessalonians 4. But I think it's nice, especially to see how Paul and his fellow workers were doers and not just talkers only. And it even is handy that it mentions that he was like a father for something we'll see in the gospel reading today. In any case, we have 1 Thessalonians 4 at the first verse. Finally, then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you're doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Notice that the preaching of Paul includes not only the the gospel that inspires faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to know his salvation, but also how to please God. And here it's clear that this is the commandments of God, the law, which while it convicts and accuses us, also instructs us in and restricts what a true good work really is. This is why there's no room for favoritism and that kind of corruption, because the law of God speaks to everyone. There's nobody who's exempt from it. And when it does speak to us as human beings, it speaks a word that convicts anybody who sins, right? So we know what it is to please God, what ought to be done. That isn't to say that we are fully and completely accomplishing that. The law shows us that and leads us to repent of our sins and seek the Lord's forgiveness. But That doesn't mean that we're going to do the wrong thing all the more. It means that we are always striving, fighting against our flesh to do what is right and what the Lord expects. Paul is going to then lay out something very specific, which makes sense for Gentiles, but frankly makes a lot of sense for us too in our day, that we know how to control our own vessel, that is our bodies sexually, in holiness and honor, that we live a chaste and decent life, as the Catechism says. This is a godly and holy way of life. By contrast, those who are profligate, those who are promiscuous, are living contrary to God's life. They're living in impurity, he calls it. And you're transgressing and wronging not just yourself, not just your partner, but also your brothers in these matters. I think the reason for that is particularly because 
our brother may look at us and say, oh, is that how a Christian lives? I'll live like that too. Well, they could look at any old unbeliever and see that way of life as well. But the Lord has called us to be chaste. He's called us in holiness, which brings to mind all of the intricacies of holiness in the book of Leviticus, to which we are not subject in all of its commands and regulations. But in what the sixth commandment teaches, uh, that the marriage bed is to be held in honor, this still applies to us. I do think that verse eight is essential. In the one-year lectionary, when we hear this during Lent, we don't hear verse eight, and I kind of wish we did, so I'm glad we have it here, because it's Paul's conclusion right on the point where I think People who are caught in a sin, especially a sexual sin, who are approached by somebody, maybe their father, uh, maybe their pastor, maybe a neighbor who says, this is wrong and this has to stop, and you can't continue in this. It's easy to kind of brush people off and say, you know, what do you know? Or get off my back, dad. Or look, pastor, don't butt into my life and things that don't concern you. Or just increasingly, that's your opinion, man. I don't have to listen to that. It's as if Paul anticipates that very thing. And he says, look, if you disregard this command that we need to be chaste, that we need to look at what the Lord has commanded and strive for that, you're disregarding not just me and my ideas, right? This is not one of those, I think I have the spirit of Christ moments for Paul. This is not a, I would advise this. This is God's word. You're disregarding God if you say no to what the Sixth Commandment rebukes. And notice how it goes. So you're disregarding not just man, but God himself. Who is God? He is the one who gives the Holy Spirit to us, the one who sanctifies, but also the one who has made us a Christian and, and made our bodies the temple of God. Thus, what happens if you reject the God who gives the Spirit? You reject receiving the Spirit as well. The Holy Spirit does not remain with those who persist in willful, obstinate, hard-hearted sin willfully. This has always been the teaching of the Lutheran Church, and I think it's quite clearly laid out here, that if you disregard the Word of God and His commandments, in particular when they call you to repentance, notice, not receive God's Word because it always pats you on the back and says, good job, you even receive God's word when it says, I have to repent. I've done something wrong. I'm humiliated by it, but I need to be humble and receive that correction. If you disregard that, you lose the spirit of God, and with it, you lose salvation as well. So there's a seriousness to this warning, and I think verse 8 is essentially timely for us. But we see as he goes on to talk about something else, the brotherly love aspect that they are engaged in. He's pleased and, and wants to see that continue. We also have Paul kind of reminding us of how he was among them. He wants them to be working with his hands. And we know from other places in the epistles that Paul was one who was doing this as well. He was a doer and not only a speaker of the word of God. That'll be important as we get here to the gospel and look at the Pharisees and scribes. What are the gradual and verse? The graduals knew, as we have just uh, observed the, or are just about to observe, uh, All Saints Day, and we kind of enter into an All Saints Tide at the end of this season. These are the ones coming out of the Great Tribulation. They've washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7. And from Psalm 84, blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. 
a lot of our listeners probably have a church that will shift All Saints Day and Reformation to the nearest Sundays. So you might not be hearing this year or in future years this proper 26A, but it's nice to have just a bit of it even on the Sundays around All Saints Day. What can we say about this gradual? The blessedness and the holiness that we consider when we look at the saints in eternal life does not come just from their good works, just from Paul's example of a man who really knew how to use his hands and everything else. But we know, as Paul would confess to us first, it comes through the cleansing of the Lamb's blood. That's the beautiful thing we see there in Revelation. Who are the ones who make it out alive? Who are the ones who sit in the Lord's throne and and have the seat of honor with him? They're those that are washed and made clean in Jesus' blood. The forgiveness of sins is the source of this. Likewise, their strength for every good labor that follows them comes from that blood of the Lamb. And this expression, in their heart are the highways to Zion, is kind of a beautiful Hebrew way of saying they know how to get home. Jesus himself is going to lead his own home to himself. That means both to be like him, as we often mean when we talk about following Jesus or being a follower of Jesus, but above all, to join him, to be in his holiness, to see all things, including our sinful flesh at last, in subjection under his feet. Our Alleluia verses from the gospel we're about to hear, it's the core verse, the conclusion to Jesus' teaching. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The gospel reading is Matthew 23, the first 12 verses. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe whatever they tell you, but not what they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. All right, what Jesus says at the very beginning that, look, they sit on Moses' seat, so listen to them, it says. Practice and observe whatever they tell you but not what they do, is speaking not about whatever they say you should listen to and heed. No, as you see, they preach and they don't practice. In fact, the things they're preaching are heavy burdens that they themselves can't handle. The Pharisees and the scribes, in short, the Jewish leaders, were known not only for proclaiming the word of God and giving it simple, truthful explanation, but also expanding on it, filling in gaps, reconciling things with reason instead of with what the Word of God actually says and explains of itself. And this is deadly. This leads to legalisms of all kinds, as we see, uh, and legalisms that don't have their root in God's Word that rightly commands our conscience, that ought to accuse us or point us in what is right, but that leads us into human man-made things 
that so often are not for the sake of righteousness or holiness at all, not just a list of good practices like pray a morning prayer every day, uh, go to church on Sunday, read the Bible morning and evening. You could think of any particular practices that maybe you or I would do very rigorously and religiously, or maybe we would have some variance between the way we do our own personal devotions or even the way our church services are laid out. But then how easily these become binding commandments that seem to carry the force of, in fact, divine command when they don't at all. So this is what the Lord is warning about. What does that mean then, that we should listen to them for the sake of them sitting in Moses' seat? It means when they read the word of God, that's the thing you ought to treasure. The shame, the problem is, they neither proclaim it truthfully, particularly that it leads to Jesus Christ and faith in him, but nor do they do the things that they command, whether that's out of God's word or just out of their own supplementary imagination. We call this the felicitous inconsistency. That means a happy inconsistency. And we see this at work in all of the churches of God where the Bible is read, but where false teaching persists. So we could pick any number, but I suppose the Roman Catholic Church is kind of the first place where we would see this as Lutherans. We look at this church that is rich in the word of God. We don't deny them the name church. We would, even in our maybe our most, what some people consider our most harsh teaching about the Roman Catholic Church, namely that the office of the papacy is the Antichrist, properly speaking, that's spoken of in the, in the Bible. We can only say that because the Pope is part of the church, because he sits in Moses' seat. And if you look at the Roman Catholic liturgy, if you've ever been to one of their services, it is rich in the word of God in the same way that the Lutheran liturgy is. In fact, so much of it is exactly the same, at least in its words, if not in its tunes. The word of God is everywhere in a Roman Catholic service. But when you get to the sermon, the preaching tries to undo all of that. And yet we're convinced because the word of God is being preached, because Christians are singing every day, Lamb of God, you take away the sin of the world, have mercy on me and grant me your peace, not that false peace from Micah, but your true peace in your blood. That they go to the Lord's Supper believing exactly what it says and what Jesus says and what the Agnus Dei says, despite the fact that maybe their church doesn't teach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, but might also teach that it comes by our works and our merits as well. All to say this is the felicitous inconsistency that thank God there is hope. Uh, There's more than hope. There's probably a certainty that there are true believing Christians in many churches, even when they teach some things that are false or even significant things that are false. And that's for the sake of the word of God that does its work. That's what Jesus is saying here is that we ought to listen to the word of God and never reject that for the sake of miserable, corrupt, or false teachers. But we certainly shouldn't imitate those who, in their falseness, notice one of the things that identifies this Pharisees and scribes as false is that they don't practice what they preach. They say things, but they don't do them themselves. I think this is still easy for us to grasp because we're much more concerned with hypocrites 
uh, and we recognize that not only in religious leaders, but in all leaders. We want to have teaching and life that is united, and Jesus says the same. He points out all the various things that are done not for the sake of helping people grow in holiness, not for the sake of helping people get more richly into the scriptures and know their Lord better, but are done to self-aggrandize, right? They lay heavy burdens with the implication that surely they're doing it as well, and they're not even willing to help somebody do it or lift it or, or be reconciled to God. Likewise, all of their ceremonies are done for the sake of being seen and getting special titles. It is always a tendency of the human sinful heart to do its works for the sake of the rewards rather than for love of God or because it's simply the right thing to do as a way to feed our egos. This is why the Lord contrasts humility as a proper Christian attitude and virtue rather than being egotistical, being arrogant, being boastful in what we might do. Okay, we come to, I think, the difficult part where he lists a bunch of common things. Rabbi, just a word for teacher. Father, something all of us have, even if he's not around. Uh, instructor, a very general word. And Jesus says we're not to call anybody these things. I mentioned uh, that from the beginning of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, how Paul says he was like a father to everybody. And how Paul elsewhere often talks about his relationship as a father. And of course, I think all of us have called our father's dad some similar equivalent term. So you might be wondering, have I brushed up a foul of what Jesus is teaching here? Am I becoming one of those hypocrites like the Pharisees sitting in Moses' seat but not doing the things that the Lord's word says? Well, the Lord is certainly using hyperbole here, and I think it's helpful to see what his aim is, which is to be called these things, these titles, for the sake of the title. St. Ambrose and St. Augustine had a famous saying that it is not the title of bishop that we ought to seek, but it is the task of a bishop. Paul says, those who desire the office of overseer bishop desire a noble task. See how it's not about becoming the powerful name and title and privileged person, but it's about seeking the task, which in the case of being a pastor or being a pastor of pastors even, is absolutely a servant role. And notice that's what Jesus says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. Jesus has already had this discussion with his disciples once before too. I am among you as one who serves. You also ought to be like that. Ultimately, the point is this. The titles are not the point. You'll be out of place for a pastor to be mad that he deserves a certain amount of honor and respect and, and all of this. That is not to say that we ought to disrespect and dishonor those who serve. But notice the way the commandments go. It's not make sure you ensure that everybody respects how great you are. It's the opposite. Let us all respect those who are worthy of that honor. And let's recognize where the source of the honor is, not in themselves or their prowess or their amazingness. It comes from their God. I think there's a way you could, you could rephrase all of this well, because the emphasis is on having one teacher, having one father, having one instructor, and this is Christ, right? So we have the Father, we have the Son, and we have the Spirit behind all of this in the Word of God. 
What's the source of it? If you might call your pastor, pastor, because you know he serves the good shepherd and the word you hear is not his own, but the words of your good shepherd, you're doing well. Likewise, teacher, likewise, even father. Certainly we have spiritual fathers and pastors, just as we have earthly fathers, but nobody imagines that, no Christian at least imagines, that the Lord is helpless and unrelated to this. He's the source of all life. He's the source of all good. He's the one who gives us himself. With about a minute or two, what would you say about the hymns for the coming Sunday? The hymn of the day is a very important hymn. It's hymn 585 in Lutheran service book, Lord Jesus Christ with us abide. This is a hymn that was written by Melanchthon. At least he probably wrote the first stanza in Latin. It was translated and expanded by Nicholas Selnecker, who was one of the uh, counterparts working with Martin Chemnitz on the Book of Concord and the Formula of Concord. It draws not on this passage, but on Lord Jesus Christ, abide with us for it is toward evening in Luke's gospel on the road to Emmaus. But what it unfolds is the power of the word of God, the necessity of the word of God to shield us in these last days. And it becomes a giant prayer that we would treasure the Lord's true word that it would be preserved among us, as our collect for the day said, that it would be preached truthfully, both in what it tells us about faith and what it commands in terms of our doing and our life, that we would not dim it in any way by our own ideas and egotistical thoughts or our pride, uh, and that the Lord would preserve us forever in Christ Jesus and in his word. We sang it at convention this past year in 2023, uh, and we've sung it many other times lately. I would commend this, and not as a burden that I myself am not singing as well, but I would commend this in Christian freedom to the whole Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and to any Christian as a prayer for the church, particularly for our church body, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, that everything we're asking for in this hymn would be granted to us by God's grace, that we would keep pure and uh, be unified in the word and the sacraments of God and not clutter it with our own ideas. God grant it among us. Pastor Sean Denzer is Director of Worship for the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. Sean, thank you. You're welcome. Jesus instructs us to test everything against his word. Whatever the teacher may be, whoever the teacher may be, we test it against the great teacher who teaches us in Holy Scripture, Jesus Christ himself. I'm Todd Wilkin. Stay with us. Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., P.O. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio.